This is the Commercial Property Show Australia. Show number 15. If you talk to a professional investor about the Adelaide resi market, they always say it's slow and steady. Is that the case for commercial as well? I don't like the slow part, but it's certainly steady. Okay, Andrew, I don't like the slow part. Hey, how's everyone doing? I'm your host, Andrew Bean. Thanks for joining me once again today. In the last episode, I announced the launch of the website and I'd like to report that went off unhinged and was a really, really great event. We had a lot of traffic on the site that day and it's just been building and building and building. So I just want to thank everyone who's been visiting the site, reading the blogs and listening to the podcast. It's awesome. I'm glad you're enjoying it. I had a lot of great feedback and I'm just going to keep adding more and more valuable content to the site so we can all learn and get better at investing. So if you'd like to be a part of the commercial property community, go to www.commercialpropertyshow.com.au and then when you're on the homepage, there's a button that says sign up. If you sign up to that, that gives you access to post in the forums and then you can go on the forum and ask the experts questions, network with each other. Maybe you want to sell a property or maybe you're looking for a tenant The world is really your oyster. You can be whatever you want it to be. So let's get involved. Let's help each other. And let's make this a really, really great community. Now, in today's show, Chris Lang and I continue part two of the negotiating tactics series, agreeing to the terms and securing the deal. Chris explains the methods he has perfected over his career and breaks it down into easy steps for us to repeat. Adelaide agent Oliver Tatani shares his in-depth boots-on-the-ground knowledge of the South Australian market. He goes into fine detail about the government spend and infrastructure projects and even identifies one of the main value-add strategies in the SA market. Now, a message from my company, Develop a Life. At Develop a Life, we want to help you unlock your financial freedom. If you have a big backyard that's getting too hard to maintain and you want to downsize without the trouble of moving, we offer a subdivision service to New South Wales residents. We manage the entire subdivision and sale of the land for you. There could literally be hundreds of thousands of dollars waiting to be unlocked right in your own backyard. Head over to our website to request a free subdivision assessment today. That's www.developalife.com.au Today's guest has more than 50 years of investing experience under his belt. It's none other than Mr. Chris Lang. How are you, mate? I'm good, Andrew. And you? I'm fantastic, buddy. Today, we are going to jump into Negotiating Tactics Part 2, Agreeing to the Terms and Securing the Deal. So, Chris, what terms can actually be negotiated in a commercial property deal? Well, the answer is everything that you can get away with from a point of view of a purchaser. I mean, vendors obviously have in mind a a very clear outcome, but negotiating is based on give and take. And the idea is that everyone walks away with a feeling of having won. And that's part of the process and part of the trick of, you know, doing a good deal when you're a purchaser. Now, the thing is that if all you're negotiating about is the price, there's got to be a winner and a loser. And so what I like to do is have a number of variables on the table. So price is obviously one. Then there is the settlement term. Then there is also whether you pay the whole deposit immediately or or in two parts. You have due diligence. It could be making something subject to finance, but that's probably not a smart move, but you you could include that. So when you put in an offer, and I always, when I start off, put in a formal 
written offer on letterhead, even though it might be emailed. And it's generally at least two, probably three pages long. And with most commercial properties, it'll include a due diligence requirement as well. So there could be five or six items. Now, the reason for that is that when you put in a, a relatively low price, and I don't mean a ridiculously low price, but something that is believable, if you've got four other things that you're under negotiation where you might put in a settlement of 120 or 150 days, you might put in 5% deposit on signing the contract and another 5% in 30 days. Your due diligence period with a team I've got, if push came to shove, we could do it in seven business days of the physical assessment of the property. But I always start at 28 business days. The 28 business days is nearly six weeks by the time you take into account weekends, but it sounds better if you're talking business days. So doing it that way, you've got, as I said, four, five, maybe six plates spinning in the air, and the vendor isn't just focused on price. And the purpose of doing that is that, and I think in the, the last time we spoke, you said, how do we get information from agents? Sometimes the vendor can tell you more indirectly than the agent can. Because if, if you've got a 150-day settlement and a low price, if the vendor doesn't argue on, on a 150-day settlement, that tells you straight away that they're not under a lot of pressure. Okay. Right? Now, and sometimes I say to my clients, it's better to let the vendor name the price and you name the terms. Because let's say the property is vacant. Well, part of the deal might be that you want a 150-day settlement, but you'll pay, agree to pay, and this is not the first round of negotiations, I'm trying to work towards a final deal. You might pay a 10% deposit on executing a contract, a further 20% in 30 days, at which point you are given access to the property, not possession, access to the property, to undertake renovation works to the property. So it means that the day you settle, the property has been recarpeted, repainted, whatever it is, and that's all been done. And even before settlement, you can appoint an agent to start showing people through. If you're lucky, you might get someone to commit before settlement, but if not, at least you've hit the ground running and it's really cost you nothing. But it, it's invaluable because otherwise you'd have to settle on the property and then you'd have to expend the money. But also, if you spend the money before you settle, you say, why would a vendor allow you to do that? Well, my answer to the, the agent is, well, why wouldn't he? Because if for whatever reason my client doesn't settle, he ends up with a fully renovated property back. He keeps the deposit. So he's the vendor's way ahead. So A, he's got a, a larger deposit up front and B, his property's being fully renovated before it's even settled. But from my client's point of view, when you have the property valued for finance, the valuer, strictly speaking, cannot value it at more than the contract price. However, if you can demonstrate that you've expended another $250,000, $300,000 in upgrading the property, the valuer has to take that into account. So therefore, if you bought it for, let's say, one and a half mil, you'd spent $2 million on it, the valuer may well value it at $1.92 million because now your property is in ready-to-go condition just waiting for the tenant to move in. So you see... It's important to, and that's, that's where this first offer will flush it out. If they suddenly say, no, we want 30 days, not 150 days, well, you know, they're highly motivated, you know. They want to do a deal, right? So you can gauge pretty quickly as to what the vendor's motivations are as the initial response to that offer. So I guess when you're making your offer, you might be making terms that are pretty vanilla that you put into all contracts. Well, I mean, obviously the price and what have you would alter, but yeah, I generally start with a two-part deposit, you know, based over 30 days, 28 days due diligence. I have a page and a half in the offer spells out exactly what will be done with the due diligence, what I want from the vendor, plans, maintenance contracts, all sorts of things. So, but the reason for that is at that initial point, the vendor is only looking at the commercial terms, like the deposit, the settlement, the price. And so the due diligence is not a, generally a problem. And 
you know, I have some clients or some vendors or agents will say, no, they won't agree to due diligence. And I'll say, well, I've provided you with the offer. How about you just take it to your client? Now, to their surprise, the client comes back and says, that's fine. 28 days we can't live with, but maybe 10 business days. What I do is the contract, when it's executed, has this due diligence period running concurrently with settlement. So it's not the due diligence period plus the 60 days settlement afterwards. It happens within the 60 days, if that's the final figure that we agree on for settlement. Now, the beauty is that we might go back and forth. Some of it might be verbal after that. Some of it might be by exchange of emails. But when we reckon we've got the final commercial terms sorted out, as regard the deposit, the price, the due diligence, etc. I will then redo the, the exact same letter that I had before, but highlight all the changes that have been agreed in red. Okay. And the reason for that is that it's when it goes the second time, the vendors have already seen it. And that's the beauty with putting in a written offer with the selling agent. He's duty bound to pass that on. And generally, they're lazy. They just literally on-send the email that I sent to them. So the vendor has already aware of the format of the offer. So that's not a surprise. So when they get the second one, by marking it all in red, the implication is you needn't bother reading the rest of it. It hasn't changed. Only look at the things that we've already agreed over the last week or so and they go tick 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 yeah that's all fine that's what i agreed to and at the very end i add a little thing say we the vendors hereby agree to proceed on this basis now the reason for that is it's not legally binding but it is morally or mentally binding so we have a heads of agreement and the reason for that is i want the vendors to formally sign off so it's not the agent telling me what he thinks the vendor will agree to the vendor has to sign off on it now part of the reason for that is that it's got in it the due diligence clause and we have it's a layman's version of the legal clause that goes in the contract so what we then do is we send the due diligence clause that we have as a standard one across to the vendor's solicitor and say, look, instead of you trying to draft the clause, here's the clause that reflects what we've already agreed to. Now, sometimes you get the vendor solicitor who wants to grandstand and then wants to redraft our clause or the commercial terms of the deal. And we say, well, hang on a minute. Do you have a copy of the heads of agreement? Invariably, if, if they, they're trying to be smart, they'll say, well, no, we, we haven't got a copy. So, well, why don't we send you one? So all of a sudden, they realise that their client has actually signed off on the deal that we're trying to get them to document as far as the sale contract is concerned. Yeah, so I guess they have no leg to stand on then. Well, they look a bit stupid and they get a bit annoyed if, the, for whatever reason, the agent or the vendor hasn't passed it across to them. But the due diligence clause that we have is important because it provides us with the ability to effectively look at whatever we want to look at to verify the property is what we believe we bought. And if we're not happy for whatever reason, we can withdraw. Now, if you suddenly produce that after the commercial terms have been agreed, the vendor could rightly say, well, I didn't really agree to this. That wasn't part of what my understanding was. But if I've given a term at the outset, even whether he read it or not is irrelevant, and then produce it at the very end, and it's not marked up in any way in red, and he signs it, even if he still hasn't read it, he's morally bound to accept the terms that we put in there. Okay, that's a good one. So, Chris, say you're getting a bit of pushback on an offer. What's the first term that you will go to to adjust to say, okay, well, what if we do this? Well, I mean, as I said, it depends on what their first response is uh, as to whether I know the vendor is keen to do a quick deal or whether they're hanging out on price and might be interested in some alternate terms. The other thing you've got to understand is while you start out with maybe four, five, six things that you're negotiating, invariably, you know, it'll come down to price. And as I said, when there's only one thing on the table to negotiate, whether it's price or settlement or whatever, one party wins, one party loses. What I tend to do is, at that point, is to say to them, well, look, if you want, let's pick a figure, $1.5 million for the property, and we think it's worth 1.3, if you want $1.5 million, the settlement's going to have to be 150 days. But we could do 1.3, maybe 1.35 on 60 days. Okay. 
right? Now, instead of being take it or leave it, which is the, the implication if you just offer a lower price, it's which one do you want? If you want the price, you're going to have to give us a longer settlement. If you want the shorter settlement, you've got to lower the price. Yeah, it gives the seller a bit more of a choice. It's like they're in control. Well, they think they're in control. Either deal you're happy with, right? And the secret of negotiating is you need to paint someone into a corner, but always leave them a way out. The way that you want them to step out, though. Correct. Yeah. But because it's their choice, they feel good about it. Very good advice. So when you're putting in an offer, do you ever put in multiple offers with different price points and different terms like that to give them more choice at the outset? No, I put in, because at that point, you see, if I do that, it's not going to really help me. I'm guessing at what is important to them. I want them to tell me what's important. And that's why I'll put in, as I said, a believable offer, extended terms, uh, split deposit, due diligence over 28 days. I just want some feedback, none of which is threatening. I mean, they're, they're probably saying, gee, there's no way I'd agree to that or that or that. But they'll come back with variations on it. And depending how they respond, that tells me, not definitively, but it gives me a far better idea than when I started out as to what is really motivating them. So I think you would be seen as a bit cute to do that as an opening strategy. Okay. So what's the strangest term you have ever requested or seen, Chris? A little while ago, and we won't get into the specifics of the price and the, the type of property, but I was in a situation where the vendor was a, a widow who was selling this property and it didn't matter how much we negotiated, she would not budge on price. And you remember I said before, sometimes it's better to let the vendor name the price and you name the terms. I was negotiating on behalf of an engineer who had a very good income and I said to him, what I suggest we do is you can get a, a 70% on first mortgage. What I suggest we do is we ask the vendor, and this is back in the early 1980s when first mortgage interest rates were 18%, right? And second mortgage interest rates were 22 Wow. So most people have never heard of that before, but I can assure you it was difficult to do deals. So he could get a first mortgage of 70%. I said, what we'll do is we'll ask the vendor to leave in the property a second mortgage equating to the 30%, all right? Now, if she knocks you back to 20%, he said, that's fine. I've got some cash and my family can help out with the rest of the deposit if I need to. So, and we said, we'll do it on the second mortgage on 8%. That was the deal, right? First mortgage, 18%. Second mortgage, 8%, which it normally should be 22%. So anyway, blow me down if she didn't accept it. <laughs> right? And I said, well, you'd have to be laughing. I said, you've still got your cash in the bank there. You've got the whole thing 100% financed. And anyway, we, we documented the deal and so forth. And on the Monday, I got a call from the vendor solicitor. And I thought, oh, hang on, we've got a problem here. You know, I thought I was about to be abused for taking advantage of some poor widow and what have you. He said, no, 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 no. He said, you don't understand. Because of her pension, the 8% is going to cause her a problem. Can we drop the rate to 5%? (laughs) That's a good deal. So that was when I learned how important it is to not get bent out of shape over price. Right, because I mean, he had income, he needed deductions as engineer. So, I mean, he had 100% geared. All he had to pay was a stamp duty, and it was a good deal. How good's that? I wish I could find a deal like that now. Well, you've got to wait for interest rates to climb a bit before you will. Yeah, fair enough. All right, Chris, so we'll wrap it up there. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I think for this part, we've covered everything. Fantastic. Chris Lang has been my guest today. Thanks, Chris. It was my pleasure again. Are you sick of being tied down to a job you hate? Wouldn't you like to choose if and when you want to work? Cashflow from commercial property is one of the best ways to replace your income and wave bye-bye to that day job. It's not unusual to receive 50 to 100 to even $200,000 of net income from one commercial property. Imagine not having to work but you still get that paycheck each month. I'm taking steps to make this a reality for me and my family. 
Like me, the first step you need to take is investing in knowledge. James Dawson's commercial property cash flow blueprint is the number one online course on the subject in Australia. If you want to take your commercial investing to the next level, do what I did and invest in yourself first. Go to www.jamesdawsoncommercial.com.au forward slash CPS to check out his free webinar and you can find the affiliate link in the show notes. My next guest is a director and head of agency. He was awarded the South Australian Property Professional of the Year in 2019. It's Oliver Tatani. How are you, mate? Andrew, I'm really well, and, and thank you for such a positive uh, and uplifting intro. Appreciate it. <laughs> no worries, mate. All right. Today's market review is the city of Adelaide. And, mate, first off, any market where you don't have to pay stamp duty, I want to know more about. So when did the stamp duty actually get abolished? The stamp duty cessation was brought into play by the former Labor government, uh, who, whilst I'm a, a Liberal Conservative voter, I thought had great insight into abolishing stamp duty as a real impetus to get uh, investment into the Adelaide CBD, um, because ideally it is only on commercial transactions. So to their credit, uh, they decided back in, I believe it was back in 2016, to phase stamp duty out over three years. That wasn't well received because there was some ambiguity about it happening over time. So people were keeping their hands in their pocket until such time that stamp duty was abolished. Uh, but again, to their credit, after about six months, they said, no, we're going to bring the, the abolition forward. And stamp duty was then abolished by uh, what was a Labor government. Beautiful, mate. So did you actually see an increase in investment as soon as it got abolished? Look, any opportunity that South Australia can, and, and of course, the city of Adelaide more particularly, can sell the narrative that there's another reason why you need to invest in Adelaide was always going to help. So absolutely, we saw an uptick, not just in local transactions, but interstate investors saying, well, maybe it is time to look at Adelaide from an investment perspective. So I would have thought uh, and I don't have, you know, the numbers directly in front of me, but um, I, I think there was a tangible benefit for sure. Yeah, beautiful, mate. So what are you seeing in that marketplace right now? That's an interesting question. <laughs> Obviously, COVID-19 grabs all the headlines uh, and the effect that it's had on commercial markets, you know, not just here locally, but nationally and globally. Obviously, there's the well-reported doom and gloom about office space and the future of the tenant maker. But, you know, Contrary to all that, we've had a really positive couple of months, especially from a Knight Frank point of view. Uh, we've transacted almost $250 million worth of commercial office, retail and development site transactions. You know, so purely from a selfish point of view, we've had a really good run. But putting that aside, I think the market is cautious with regards to where they're spending their money and, and how they're spending their money. But, you know, there's certainly a real desire from an investor's point of view to still invest in good quality commercial, industrial, retail property. Okay, so what particular assets are actually in demand in the Adelaide city market? Of course. Uh, so I think to my point that I just raised, investors, I don't think they have a specific asset class that they're happy to invest in. Obviously, if you're an industrial investor, you're going to look favorably on industrial assets and vice versa if you're retail or commercial. But I think the investor per se is becoming a little bit more flexible in their investment requirements. We're seeing a number of industrial transactions take place. Uh, we recently completed, and it's due to settle in the next week or so, an industrial warehouse fully leased around that $3 million mark. We saw a Sydney investor, you know, buoyed by the fact that he didn't have to pay stamp duty, loved the potential to get in there and buy something that probably costs him four and a half, five percent in Sydney or New South Wales, he's buying it for six and a half, seven percent here in Adelaide. So that was an investment case that he was sold on. Across office markets, it all comes down to quality. If it's a recently new build with good quality tenants, then 
you know, it's still very much on the cards for investors. Retail, yes, lots of doom and gloom in the retail space. But when we talk about non-discretionary neighbourhood centres, you know, that have their really secure anchor supermarket with maybe four to 10 specialties that are aligned on that non-discretionary spend, we're seeing great demand for those assets as well. So I think overarchingly, what we're saying is that there's a huge flight to quality when it comes to investors' appetite. With Adelaide, mate, from an outsider looking in, and I've done a fair bit of research on the Adelaide resi market and then also (laughs) a fair bit on the commercial market, is it very much more of an industrial kind of city? It seems that there seems to be a lot of industrial around. And then following that, what kind of vacancy are you seeing across each sector? Okay, look, I certainly don't want to be on a podcast telling people that we're an industrial city. We're certainly certainly more diverse than that, Andrew. Certainly more diverse than that. But I think where you're probably hearing more about industrial is the fact that obviously the federal government came out about 18 months ago now and committed to spending around $90 on defence investment and infrastructure. So that's with regards to building the frigates and the submarines here in South Australia. So that's certainly spurned on and got the state excited because in the past, we were a manufacturing state. We built cars here. We were the home of Westinghouse. So we had a really good industrial base. That industrial base over time has really been caught out. So when the news came through about this $90 billion federal government investment, uh, you know, one of the largest infrastructure spends in federal government history, obviously, spruikers of the South Australian investment narrative pin that to our hopes. So you know, we're really excited by that. And I think that goes to the point where you're saying, well, all this research and all this commentary is around that industrial space. But I certainly think that's aligned to that $90 billion defence spend by the federal government. Yeah, I should actually correct myself. I should have used a manufacturing state rather than industrial. That was just the first word. That I do stand corrected. No, that's okay, mate. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> so, mate, across each sector, where are you seeing the vacancy rates roughly? Okay, so I think we should probably start with office. And when we talk about office, we're obviously talking about office towers in the Adelaide CBD, understanding that in other jurisdictions, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, they do have, you know, sort of satellite cities. You know, you talk about New South Wales, you've got Parramatta, Western Sydney and the like. But in Adelaide, obviously, majority of our office space is centralised within the Adelaide CBD. So if we look at that specifically, we're talking about an average vacancy rate of somewhere between 12 to 14 percent, depending on what quarter you're looking at. But the really good story is that, and this is pre-COVID-19 that we're talking about, so the new vacancy rates haven't come out yet, and they're likely to be skewed given what's happening. But pre-COVID, there was a really good story around your premium and A-grade vacancy rates where you really found it difficult to find space in those markets. So, And when you drill down even further, a thousand square metres of contingent space was almost impossible to find. We were talking about vacancy rates less than three or four percent. So the issue with office vacancy in Adelaide is that we do have a lot of old stock that remains in the PCA numbers and probably skews the vacancy a little bit. But I think on average, you're in that 12 to 14 percent mark. But I guess the point is there is some good news around high-quality, refurbished A and premium-grade stock. So it seems like there's an opportunity there with the office market to obviously refurbish it, to bring it up to that A-grade standard. I think you raise a great point. We're out there. I think it's easy for us agents to sell nice, shiny assets, and in this case, shiny office buildings. But there's a real, I believe, a real great opportunity in trying to educate investors and maybe new investors to the Adelaide market that if they're willing to take on a little bit of risk and they're willing to get their hands dirty, then I think there's some real capital appreciation play by maybe investing in B-grade assets here in the CBD that are well located, getting your hands dirty refurbishing, repositioning, and then taking that upside. And there's already a number of those players that are in Adelaide that are already doing really well from that. Yeah, we always talk about property with upsides and finding your add value strategies. So that's great. I'm sure listeners will love that, mate. So vacancy rate for the other sectors, where are we talking with those ones? The industrial market's a little bit more fragmented. It's made up of sort of inner and outer north, inner and outer south. And then you've got, so they're the two larger industrial precincts. It's hard to sort of put your finger on vacancy rates in those sectors. It's not as clear as it is in the Adelaide CBD, but I would like to think 
again, for good quality, clear span, industrial space, you're talking vacancies, you know, potentially in the single digits, um, where the older style industrial space that potentially is now outdated, given the drivers of logistics and making sure that your location's close to transport and to the highways, those vacancies are likely to be in the low double digits, I would have thought. Okay, and obviously retail's probably not looking good at the moment as a whole. Yeah, again, it depends what retail we're looking at. So obviously the major retail outlets or precincts in the city are your Rundle Street. I'd like to think, and I haven't seen these numbers, so maybe don't quote me for some time, is that the retail vacancy on Rundle Mall is still likely to be in the single digits. And I think that's a really good outcome for that strip. But if you then started looking at high streets within metro locations outside of the Adelaide CBD, you could be anywhere between, you know, six or seven percent upwards to 20%, depending on which street you're on. You know, we've got the likes of the Parade Norwood, Prospect Road, King William Street, Hyde Park, all these different little metropolitan locations sort of have their own story around vacancy. And depending on what type of ownership profile, do they have a a supportive local council is a big indicator and a big factor with regards to how those streets are performing. Speaking of local council, I did hear the whispers that the planning development laws were changing very, very soon in Adelaide. Has that come into effect yet? Uh, Andrew, you are certainly testing my general knowledge but um, <laughs> look about the state. But look, you're right. There is a DPA, so Development Plan Amendment, in with the state government. So it's a whole of state DPA. Uh, that's soon to be addressed. It was supposed to hit planning regulations earlier this year, but I think COVID sort of pushed that back. And given the significance of the DPA, they've pushed it out to make sure that they get it right. So I think everyone's really excited by it. From what we know, it's essentially around the main corridors and those high streets that we're talking about, getting density levels right and getting activation right on those main corridors. And I think everyone's really excited about that. There was a sort of a a prelude to that, you know, maybe over the last three or four years where we saw local councils taking it upon themselves to rezone some of the high streets and main corridors within within their jurisdictions to get more density and more activation. Have some of the local councils got it right? Absolutely. But I think some of the local councils are probably thinking, hmm, maybe we might have thought this through a little bit further and got the, the spacing right. All right, mate. So let's jump over to cap rates per sector. What are you seeing across the board there? So we probably need to provide some context when we talk about cap rates. So, you know, industrial wise, so let's talk primarily about premium grade assets, good covenants, recently constructed, those sort of assets that tick all the boxes. Your A grade stock. Your A grade stock. If we're talking about office A grade, I think you're probably in that six to six and a half percent range with some assets trading for a little bit tighter than that. So sometimes in the high fives. And I think if you look at the most recent deal that Knight Frank did on 50 Flinders, my colleague Guy Bennett was a successful agent there, transacted that at just under 6% or thereabouts. So that probably sets the new benchmark for Adelaide CBD core A-grade assets. So I think you're probably in that six to six and a half on average uh, when you're talking about core office. When you're looking at industrial, there's limited A-grade transactions in that space. However, if we had to put our hat on it, I think we're somewhere in that high sixes to low sevens when we're talking about yield. And in that retail space, I think we have seen not a blowout in yields, but high-end premium grade retail pre-COVID was certainly in the low fives, but we're likely to see that in the high fives, low sixes as well. Okay, beautiful. So, being that the add value opportunity is bringing a, a B or C grade asset to an A grade asset, if you yep. are going to invest in a B or C grade asset, what would you expect over a general range of cap rates? Where would you be trying to buy that asset so you could bring it down to those cap rates? So I think, let me flip that, Andrew, for you, because I think it might be better for your listeners to think about it this way. It's all about how well we buy, obviously. One of my former mentors said, Oliver, you always make money when you buy, not when you sell. So that's always stuck with me throughout my career. But I think when you're looking about repositioning, especially office assets, it's about the rate per square meter. So the improved rate per square meter. And I think you can probably, and I'm pretty confident because there's two or three assets that I'm working on off market at the moment here in the Adelaide CBD, you're talking about rates per square meter of built form in that three and a half to 3750 
uh, where the sweet spot is and where you want to be buying. And the idea is if you can buy a 35 to 3,700 a square meter, if you're putting in somewhere like a thousand bucks, $1,200 a square meter, it's costing you five grand a meter at end, at final reposition, then you're probably selling for five and a half to six thousand dollars a square meter. Okay, so that's selling. What about your rental? Because a lot of investors we buy and hold kind of investors for cash flow. Okay, so well, if you're buying, and this is the challenge, right? So if you're buying these B grade assets, your yield, your passing yield is likely to be very low because you're buying something that probably got a lot of vacancy, mm-hmm. right? So that's that's the challenge. But I would have thought that once it's repositioned and reset, allowing for your 12 months letting up and incentives, et cetera, et cetera. Once you net that all back, I think you're likely to be in that eight, nine, 10% range should you buy well. Okay. And that's across the board, is it, for each sector? Well, I'd like to think that if your office sector is in that range, then if you're repositioning assets in the industrial space, I would have thought historically investors are going to want more yield given the type of asset class we're discussing. So I would have thought industrial, if we're repositioning and taking a punt in that sector, uh, we're likely to be in the 10 to 12% range upon completion. Okay. With the cap rates, have you seen a tightening over the last 12 months or has it just kind of stayed steady with now COVID? Look, I think, you know, commercial property has been performing extremely well across the board for some time now. And I think as interest rates and the cost of debt continued to reduce, there was certainly a flight uh, from investors to continue to push into the commercial sector and buy more assets. So as a result, we saw compression in yields. I don't think that's totally left us. I still think for the right assets, there's still a huge amount of capital in the market and that capital needs to be placed. And I think for the right assets, they're still willing to pay the right yield, and that yield is still relatively tight if you're looking at historical yields. But I think for anything that's not A or premium grade, there's certainly a little bit of softening in those yields. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, fair enough. All right, mate. So are there any big players entering the market there? And then also, are there any big players leaving the market? Oh, look, I'm not sure that we've seen any exodus out of Adelaide yet. I'm a big advocate for my state and, you know, I think it's got a lot going for us. I think if you look at Adelaide historically, we have been a bit of a sleeper in the sense that people were always reluctant to come to Adelaide. But I think if you look at the new defence spend by the federal government, you know, our biomedical precinct that's really brought the city to life, the new Liberal government after 16 years of Labor leadership, we've now got a pro-business government in play. So I think all those things have really helped the abolition of stamp duty. So I think there's a real investment narrative around Adelaide at the moment. So I'd like to think we've got a net migration of investors coming to Adelaide. We're certainly seeing that on the ground across all value levels, where we're getting more interest from Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, across the country. And certainly at the big end of town, the likes of the Singaporean investors who always liked Adelaide, and we love them for that, uh, they've been investing here for 15, 20 years, but certainly continued interest from some German funds. And we're talking to a number of buyers throughout Asia, uh, and certainly Vietnam are one of those ones that are taking our attention at the moment. Okay. So if you talk to any kind of professional investor about the Adelaide market, they always say the resi market, they always say it's slow and steady. Is that the case for commercial as well? I don't like the slow part, but it's certainly steady. (laughs) Okay, Andrew, I don't like the slow part. Look, I saw a a really interesting point that the, the PCA came out with a couple of years ago, which showed Adelaide's growth over the course of 20 years, right? And we were the only state that showed an annual growth rate of 2.5% year on year for the last 20 years. Now, obviously, Sydney and Melbourne have got huge amount of growth. Brisbane have had huge amount of growth, but they also get the troughs. And I think you can see that now with what has happened with COVID and the market dislocation that's happening. You know, there's real concerns about markets like Melbourne and Sydney and how they might come off. The beauty about the commercial and and retail and industrial markets here in Adelaide is that we're almost protected by the fact that we don't get huge amounts of buoyancy, so we don't get huge amounts of supply coming on. And what I mean by supply is we don't get huge amounts of speculation. So by not having huge amounts of speculation, you're protected on the downside. So I think that goes to your point about being slow and steady. I'd like to think that we're, we're safe and steady. That's what I'd like to think. Mate, as an investor, safe and steady is music to my ears. 
could. <laughs> so, mate, are there any major development projects that are in the pipeline or being completed in the near future that could create an oversupply in any sector? Well, to that point, no, it's the short answer. I think if you look at the two large, we've got two office buildings coming out of the, likely to be coming out of the ground. One is an office building on Piri Street owned by CBUS. Uh, they're building a 30,000 square metre office tower there, reportedly, but 22,000 square metres of that has already been pre-committed to the state government. So that leaves about 8,000 square metres of vacancy, which I would think inside two years, it's likely to be taken up. And then the other muted office building, that's the only one that's likely to get out of the ground, barring one other, is Charter Hall's development on the Southern Cross site here on King William Street. Now, it's the state's worst kept secret, but everyone's anticipating that a federal government requirement will go to that site. So that is likely to take up all of the office space that's likely to be around 35,000 square metres on that site. So again, you've got 60-odd thousand square metres of office space coming to market with 75, 80% of it already pre-committed. Again, not a huge amount of supply that's going to hit the market. That's going to mean we're going to see vacancy rates get out to 20, 25, 30%, which is really good if given any new entrants into the market that are looking to take advantage of logistics or the increase in manufacturing coming out of the defence spend are likely to want to see things designed and constructed to meet their specific needs. So again, I don't see huge supply coming on from an industrial point of view. That's not already pre-committed. Good news, mate. Good news. So do you see the potential for office space? Now businesses have realised that they could potentially have workers working from home. Do you see that changing the vacancy rate in future for office space, like office demand? Andrew, I think it's a million dollar question at the moment. And I guess I guess I'll talk purely from a personal point of view. I'm the type of person that needs to be around people loves to collaborate, loves to get energy from others, and and hopefully I can provide some energy to others as well. I'm not sure how you do that at home by yourself. Yes, do I agree that there's some office workers that are likely to enjoy being from home, and whether those office workers are call centre-type workers or people that might find themselves attached to their chair and, and not requiring to be in an environment that's collaborative and integrated. Yes, those people can work from home. I'd like to think that they're not the majority of office workers that that you'll find in in CBDs across Australia or across the world. To that point, I think we as humans need to integrate and be talking to each other. I think that's just part of our biology. So I'd like to think that whilst we might see some dislocation in that space, I can't see office space uh, becoming obsolete. And there's even some reports that suggest that there might need to be a greater demand for office space as, you know, we all get a little bit scared about getting sick. We might need a little bit more room between each other when we're actually in the office. That's an interesting point. So to that point, I can't see office space, the doom and gloom. I, I think it's overreported, and I'd like to think that good quality office space is here to stay. And to all those owners out there that might be listening, all those investors that that are looking at B and and maybe C grade office space, if you're buying or you're owning that sort of space, it's time to get motivated. It's time to get proactive because that's where the biggest risk is. Because if you've got office tenants uh, or users, if they have to be in space, they're going to want to be in the best space, right? And I think if there is more opportunity or increase vacancy with downsizing potentially, then there's going to be more options and and people in B and C grade space are going to want to be in better space. So to all your listeners out there that own those sort of assets, time to get the gloves on and start repositioning your assets. Yeah, that's a good point, mate. So infrastructure projects, are there any big infrastructure projects that are happening or supposed to be happening? There's plenty happening with regards to roads. So the North-South Expressway and North-South Corridor, there's billions being invested into that. That's sort of that's sort of a 10-year project. So a lot of that is being constructed, under constructed, or has been constructed. So that's a, that's a big one for SA. Uh, I mean, we've already touched upon it, but the defence spend by the federal government is just huge for our state. We've got the Biomed Precinct. So that's anchored by the new Royal Adelaide Hospital. But we've also got another building coming out of the ground. It's called Samri 2. So that will house the only proton therapy unit in the Southern Hemisphere. So for all those listeners that don't know what that is, it's a cancer treatment that we think, given that it's the only one in the Southern Hemisphere, people will be flying in from not only across the country, 
but throughout Asia to get treatment here in Adelaide. So we might see many hospitals and the like uh, spurn on um, from that. And then we've also got our new space agency. So we're expecting great things from that. So where the old Royal Adelaide Hospital was, there's a large site here in the Adelaide CBD. That's being redeveloped by the state government with a key focus on technology and the space agency. So there are probably three or four things that are, are certainly helping with the buzz that's currently happening here in Adelaide. Yeah, that's great. Which sector do you think will be the biggest winner and loser out of COVID-19? Good question. Good question. Look, there's no doubt that industrial investment property is a bit of a market darling at the moment. So I think that sector has definitely performed the strongest coming out of COVID. It was already getting popular pre-COVID, but I think given what happened with people's eating habits and everyone flocking to the supermarkets, everyone that sort of thought, well, and the increased spending on online retail, everyone's going, oh, well, logistics, we've brought forward the popularity that was destined to come in in the logistics space. So that's certainly the best performer in the market at the moment. I think Office, you know, has probably taken a few punches and there's certainly some uncertainty there. Uh, We've already discussed that with regards to what's happening in the Office space moving forward. I'd like to think that that will settle down over the next six to nine months and people will, will start to come back to Office, will like Office, and that'll perform well over the short to medium term. When you talk about discretionary retail, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty there, no doubt, given what's happening online. Everyone knew online was coming, but I think the onset of COVID and the increased spend in online uh, retailing has probably brought what was likely to be a three or four or five year cycle, you know, back down to a 12 to 18 month cycle. So I think there's, um, there's a little bit of pain to go in the retail discretionary space, but certainly from a non-discretionary retail point of view, strong demand for assets, good neighbourhood centre, anchored by good operators like Coles and Woolies and the independent, strong independents, I think are likely to perform really well. Okay, so if you're looking for industrial space, what are the must-haves like size requirements, you know, amount of office in it? What are the things to look for? Should there be a crane, high roller doors, like stuff like that? Look, all those physical attributes are really important. Clear span, you know, high ceiling heights, good loading docks. But I think what's important here in Adelaide is making sure that you're located near the infrastructure so you can get in and out of the city quickly. So making sure you've got connection to the Nexi, so the Northern Expressway, the North and South Corridors. So that's why the Inner North is still really popular and probably the the precinct that everyone wants to get to. With regards to space, look, it could be anywhere from a 1,000 square metres up to 5,000 seems to be where majority of the deals are being done at the moment. We're just about to conclude a two and a half thousand square metre industrial deal. What's the office space in there? It's probably less than 15% with the makeup of of that space. That's a new entrant to the Adelaide market as well. So look, that, that market's performing really strong and is likely to do so for some time. Okay. So here's a bit of a different question. When you're valuing the industrial space, Do you apply an industrial cap rate rate per square metre to the industrial warehouse clear span area and then you apply the office cap rate rate per square metre for the actual office area? So you would split the portions up. You're right on that part. But an office rate for industrial property is certainly different to an office rate for a pure office investment, let's say in the CBD or in the metro locations. So whilst if you're appraising, and I won't say valuing because I don't act as a valuer, even though I'm trained as a valuer, we would appraise the warehouse space in conjunction with the office space. We would probably do two different rates. And then in the end, we would make sure that the blended rate is aligned with market expectations. Yeah, I think that's where a few listeners and myself have been tripped up before when we're doing our own little valuation appraisal is you're applying the average industrial rate and then the agent comes back to you and said oh no it's it's x you're like wow how did he get to that like it's i'm so far off yeah so and that's the point right so depending on the share of office space versus industrial uh it's always smart to do that exercise and say okay well this is what a pure warehouse is likely to be from a rate per square meter and then looking at the office space on its own and then once you've got those rates and you've got those values getting the average value and then dividing it by the whole building area to give you a blended rate is probably the safest way to go. Yeah, awesome. That's really good information. In your own words, what is the best opportunity in South Australia right now? I think 
overall, uh, investing in SA is, is a great opportunity. I think you should be confident in looking at asset classes, whether it be office, industrial or retail. Adelaide, I think, is now coming to age. I think it's our time in the sun moving forward. And I think it's a great opportunity for us to, to get in, not at the bottom end, but certainly at the beginning of our cycle. I still I think there's there's a lot of legs in our market and I'd invite them to, you know, get in contact with yourself or myself. Uh, happy to discuss how we could advise and point them in the right direction. It's definitely a very, very interesting market, which I think it's a great opportunity right now. And it's definitely one to do your homework and do your research. And where can the listeners go to find out more about your services? Yeah, of course. Oh, look, I'm more than happy for your listeners to contact me direct. So my email is uh, oliver.tatani, T-O-T-A-N-I, at au.nightfrank.com. That's probably the easiest way to get in contact with me. And, you know, there's a number of reports we do on obviously industrial office and retail sectors that we're more than happy to circulate to to your investors as a way of an introduction. Fantastic, mate. Thank you, Oliver Tatani, for today's market review. Cheers, mate. Thanks, mate. All the very best. All right, all right. That brings us to our newest segment to the show, and that segment is called Ripper Ripper Resource. In this segment, I'm going to share some resources that I have personally used, read, or listened to that have made a big difference in my life, and I think they deserve to be shared. So I've been saving this Ripper resource for this week to coincide with the launch of the website and it is Be Obsessed or Be Average by Grant Cardone. In this book, he talks about moving. He talks about putting yourself in an uncomfortable position where you're dangerous, where you can make more money. He talks about not settling for being average, being obsessed, getting obsessed about your career, getting obsessed about your life and making moves to make your life better. It's a very, very good book. I keep on learning more from it. I listened to it again last week and I picked up a new thing that I missed. He speaks about creativity follows commitment. And that's just, it's so true. It, you know, it's happened in my life where I've committed to something and because of the commitment, I went over the top with it like this podcast. You know, so it's it's a very, very good book. I suggest you listen to it. And it's this week's Ripper Resource. Be obsessed or be average. Bummer boy, Grant Cardone. Thank you for listening to the show. Don't forget to visit the website www.commercialpropertyshow.com.au. Sign up and become a part of the commercial property community. I want to thank my guest today and the man with the music, Kevin McLeod. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, committing big makes you deliver big. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Developer Life production.